Now, tomorrow morning is going to be, we'll start out with a biblical exposition. Tonight, I would classify this as teaching rather than exposition. And you're going to want to have your pens out tonight because uh, we're going to be giving principles. You're going to want to note the principles and note some of the texts uh, that they are based on. And uh, if you've got questions, um, queries, interjections, there'll be plenty of time for that tomorrow. Look forward to that. Now, as Barbara and I searched the Scriptures, we found no place where God's servants are called to be successful, but rather we found very clearly that God's servants are called to be faithful. And the classic text is 1 Corinthians 4.2, moreover, is required of stewards that they should be found pistos, faithful, that is, trustworthy. Now, how does it all work out? Well, as we began to consider that, consider what this verse meant, an outtake from the life of Moses was a revelation to our thinking. And here it is from Moses' life. Forty years after that astonishing miracle at Rephidim where God ordered Moses to strike the rock which he did, and it poured out water. And all of Israel, their multitude was watered. He again, 40 years after that event, faced a rebellious, thirsty crowd, not this time at Rephidim, but at Meribah. And bitter accusations are hurled at Moses and distraught. Aaron and Moses go in and fall on their faces before God. This is so awful what the people are doing. And God gave Moses directions. This is Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. He was to speak to the rock, speak to the inanimate rock, and tell it to bring forth water. So Moses set out to do what he'd been commanded to do, and he stood before the rock. And as he surveyed that vast multitude, a million plus all together with their livestock complaining and grumbling, Moses lost control of himself, and he erupted in a torrent of anger. This is Numbers 20, verse 10 and 11. He says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock, no doubt gesturing at the rock? And then he lifted his hand and he hit the rock and he hit it again. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And so, in that moment, he was a resounding success. You would have heard the roar go up from horizon to horizon as water poured forward. Moses, again, was the man. I mean, through his bold actions, God had met the desperate needs of his people. Another resounding success in the storied life of the great Moses. But, that was from earth's point of view. From heaven's perspective, 
Moses was a seismic failure. Because in his righteous fury, he had totally disregarded God's direct command to speak to the rock and instead struck it not once but twice. And his failure to execute God's word explicit directive was of such massive proportions that God denied him his life's dream of going into the promised land. Everything he'd been working for for 40 years, all the things he'd put up with, his, his conflict with Pharaoh, his conflict with Miriam and Aaron, all of those things went up in smoke, so to speak. And you can imagine the heartache from Moses after all those years. Well, Moses' meltdown at Meribah teaches us that you can be hugely successful in ministry and be an abysmal failure. And I would say to pastors, preachers, I say to the people here, it's possible to give the people exactly what they need, so to speak, water from the rock, the the exposition of God's Word to give perfectly orchestrated worship, and have everyone singing your praises for what you're doing and be a failure in God's eyes. The reason that Moses so miserably failed is he was not faithful, that is, obedient to God's Word. So, Barbara and I are reflecting upon this as discerning success. We had to understand that Scripture consistently links success to faithful obedience to God's Word. And it is very significant that following Moses' death, you go to the first chapter of Joshua and explicitly links up success with knowing and obeying God's Word. Joshua 1, 7, and 8. He was to learn from his boss's failure. So, set this to heart for everyone here. Success comes from knowing and doing God's Word. And so, it follows for those of us who pastor, if we're ever to know true success in ministry, we must steep ourselves in the Scriptures so that we can faithfully obey them. I was telling the pastors today, I was talking to pastors, and I said, What pastors need today, it's one thing to know the Greeks, another thing to know the Hebrew, even to know the Aramaic, but what you need to know is your English Bible. You need to know it so it comes out of your being, so that your very blood is bibline. Because, and lay this to heart, we cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. That is a fact. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. And so, that was a great day for me. When I saw from the Bible that great public success in ministry like that of Moses at Meribah is not ipso facto facto success in God's eyes. That from heaven's perspective, success is faithfulness which manifests itself in hard-working obedience to God's Word. And when I say hard-working, I've got to add that in in obedience because if you know Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, he gave one five talents, one two talents, one one talent. 
Asked him to invest it. They came back. The five-talent guy had produced. The two-talent guy had produced. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. But to the one who did nothing, he said, you wicked, lazy servant. So there can be no such thing as a lazy, faithful servant. So we're to know God's word, obey God's word, and work hard in doing it. So we came to see that there is no success apart from faithfulness. And our situation hadn't changed. It was discouraging. But it was a great opportunity for faithfulness, that is, to further dig into God's Word and see what it had to say, to listen hard and long to His voice, to live in honest obedience to His direction and work hard at it and to sense His smile. I can't tell you how healing that first principle was when, when we saw it. To see Moses flesh it out, to begin to understand it from biblical narrative, it was like the fog was starting to lift. That success is faithfulness. And that means that success is equally available to those who had few numbers like us or available to those who had vast numbers and big ministries. And that was the beginning of our liberation. And that paved the way. That was the opening thing that began to open this. That's the first thing we learned in that two or three months after our commitment. First principle, first pillar, success is faithfulness. Now, you'll catch these as they go. Uh, I won't tell you what the next one is because you'll get it. I remember well attending a minister's retreat at Forest Home Christian Conference Grounds in the San Bernardino Mountains. You know where that is. And I remember for two reasons. First of all, I was put off by my initial encounter with the speaker for the weekend. This was some years ago. This is like the 70s. He drove up in a lime-colored uh, Cadillac Coupe de Ville with a white Landau top. That was our speaker. When he got out, he was wearing a baby blue running suit. It looked like silk. <laughs> he had a gold chain around his neck. And, of course, he was taking care of the Lord's body. He was drinking a can of Sprite. And I just didn't like the looks of him. I, 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 you know, I'm sorry about being judgmental, but I did not like this guy at all. But what really did it is that night when this guest preacher, the one that drove up in the Cadillac, uh, said that if we had ex extravagant desires for material things like his Cadillac, that's what he said, or like his wardrobe, they were God's will for us. And his rationale, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So if we had a desire for those things, it was God's will. Well, um, I raised my hand. And I, and I said, you know, I've got two natures inside of me. 
And I described them as two dogs. And I said, the one I feed the most is, is dominant. And, uh, and I talked about my old nature, my new nature. And he said, I don't know about you, but my old nature is dead. My old dog is dead. All my desires are God's will. I mean, he baptized his materialistic desires. And he said, after all, the king's servants travel first class. Well, it was really fun that week because when I left that, the other pastors that were there were falling behind me and saying, here, doggy, doggy, here, doggy, doggy. They were going to get that, that out of me. Never mind the scandalous exegesis. Never mind the unbiblical, simplistic deductions about the desires of the regenerate. Never mind that the symbol of Christianity is a cross. I wrote a country song about this. Name it and claim it. That's what faith's about. You can have what you want if you just have no doubt. So make up your wish list and keep on believing, and you'll find yourself perpetually receiving. <laughs> Somebody write the, write the lyrics for that. We're going to get rich. <laughs> Is it really possible for a minister of the gospel to live this way? Of course. Read your Bible. Read the opening chapters of Acts, the Simeonites. Read church history. Read about the current church scandals in the New York Times. They love that. They'll put it on the front page. But read our own hearts. And you know, that is exactly in microcosm what Jesus was experiencing when he went to the upper room when no one made arrangements for foot washing. No one would condescend to serving others. And that is why in electrifying moment, Jesus stripped himself, donned a servant's towel, and washed the feet of his prideful, self-serving disciples and said, John 13, verses 14 and 15, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you example that you should do just as I have done to you. I mean, with unexceptionable logic, Jesus said, if it's true for me, then it is true for the lesser you. Powerful argument. But coming from the lips of infinity, infinitely compelling. If the God of the universe is a servant, how dare we, his creatures, be anything else? And so I want to say there is no success apart from a foot-washing heart, Amen. a servant's heart. Whether you have a congregation of 20 or 2,000 or wherever you are, there is no success apart from a foot-washing heart. And here's the beauty of it all. Success is equally available to all of us in flagship churches, in unsung parishes. How liberating that was to us to say we can serve. We can wash feet, so to speak. And so, this whole thing began to build as we saw that success was, first of all, faithfulness, and success is a foot-washing heart. Success is serving. That's the second principle. Now, 
switching gears, all of us know that the number one priority in all of life is loving God. Is that not so? Um, the point at scene of Christ, back over Galilee, asking Peter three times if he loved him, dramatized for all time the abiding principle before all things, even service to God, we must love God with all of our hearts. It is the highest priority of life. It's the first question for every soul here tonight. It is the essential question for anyone who wants to please God. And that, that priority has been open from time immemorial. The great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And that was solemnized and substantiated by Jesus when a lawyer asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus quoted the Shema, and then he said, This is the great and first commandment. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38. So it's from the lips of Jesus, there is nothing of greater importance. Well, I recovered this essential truth as I began to come out of this fog and was refreshed by its piercing reality that there is no success apart from loving God. I say I recovered it because I knew it. I mean, everyone knows it. But in all my ministerial misery and patheticness and self-focus, I had lost it. But Peter's stunning rapprochement with Christ fixed the truth like a pole star in our minds and it is a compass of my soul, a source of recurrent reproach and correction. Now, here's the thing. We were refreshed because by bringing clarity to our thinking about ministry and life, it affirmed that prima facie success is not necessarily success in God's economy. That's huge. It's possible to pastor a large church and not love God. Just as it had been me and my small situation. It's possible to design and have beautifully conceived services and not love God. It's possible to affect a piety and have your hands up, your eyes closed, uh, and uh, pious, and not love God. More, it's possible to preach expositional, expository sermons that please feed the people and not love God. It's even possible to write books that deepen other people's love for God and not love God. Am I exaggerating? All you got to do is read recent church history. Now, the beautiful thing is it's equally open to everyone. The ability to love God is not determined by stature, by standing. It's not tied to ability. It's not tied to university education. It's not tied to intellectual aptitude. 
It's not tied to pulpit eloquence. None of these things are advantages in loving God. And Barbara and I, principally me, got a new surge of freedom when I refreshed myself to the truth and repented. And I committed myself to consciously loving God as best I could in all that I do. And one of the things that's been so good for me is to imagine myself standing on the shore of Galilee when Jesus asked those questions and having him ask the questions of me and knowing that I can't blow it by Jesus. He knows the very Fahrenheit of my soul. He knows everything. And to be asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And to answer honestly, he knows everything. There is no success apart from loving him. So this whole thing begins to mount. Success is faithfulness. Success is serving. Success is loving. Now moving on. The writer of Hebrews in his famous section on faith makes a straightforward statement regarding the importance of faith. This is Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. You see that declarative statement? Without faith... It's impossible to please God. There's no way around it. God simply will take no pleasure in our accomplishments, no matter how great they may be, apart from faith. So it can fairly be said, without faith, there's no success. Because you don't have a smile of God. Now the writer of Hebrews, in its context, says, and this is Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, God, exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Quite clearly, a faith that uh, pleases God believes two things, in the God who exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And the part of my problem during all of that darkness with my, the, the decade of ministry behind me with the education that I had was that I wasn't believing what I believed. You say, how's that? Well, I wasn't consciously disbelieving that God is. I wasn't consciously disbelieving that he rewards those who seek him. But the reality of these things that I believed about God had faded. And what had happened is the massive implications of the God who is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him had shriveled by my self-absorbed focus of heart. The truth that God is equitable and fair rewarder of those who seek him was suppressed by my miserable preoccupation with my present circumstances. My poor me. My grumblings in that dark night of soul when I concluded I was a butt of a cosmic joke and actually said, God is not good, testified to my shrinking belief. And you know what I needed to do? I needed to understand I truly was not believing what I believed. And God wasn't smiling. And success, there can be no success apart from the smile of God. And what I needed and what was to come about in the following weeks was a rebirth of faith, a renewed belief in what I already believed. Now, I didn't just all come together at once, kind of came together in bits and pieces and out of order, but it began to assemble. 
And in retrospect, I see that it crystallized in the divine categories of faith as described here in Hebrews. Brothers, sisters, everyone here, what we believe about God is everything. If you believe in the cosmic Christ as revealed in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, then you're on to it. Because what's taught there, if you believe that he is the creator of every cosmic speck across the trillions of light years of the trackless space, if you believe that he is the creator of all textures and shapes and colors that dazzle our eyes, the light of the firefly, the fires of Arcturus, the stripes of the bumblebee, the gliding rainbows of the cell. If you believe that if you traveled out to the, to the end of space and made a right turn and traveled farther and you came across a piece of cosmic dust, that it's created by God. If you believe that... And if you believe that he is sustainer of all creation, the force presently holding your body and the universe around together, that it would all dissolve and flush without him, instead of the big bang, a big flush. If you confidently believe that he's the goal of everything, everything is moving toward him. If you further believe with all your heart that he is the creator, the sustainer, the goal, and lover of your soul, then you believe in the God who is. And I returned to believing what I believed. I didn't believe that I believed it. I believed it. Today, the most important thing me is what I believe about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing about me, and that is the most important thing about you. No more important thing than what you believe about Christ and God or God and Christ, however you want to put it. No more important thing. My lack of success didn't change, but I can tell you this, we sense the peace of God we came to sense his smile because we believe that he is the God of the Scriptures and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is no man's debtor. Success is believing. John Bunyan once said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Prayer is essential to success in the ministry. Now, there are powerful reasons, which I've laid out in other places, why we must pray. Namely, what prayer does to the preacher. Namely, what prayer does to the church. But the very heart of it is why we must pray. The great reason why we must pray is that Jesus was a man of prayer. You know, the Gospel of Mark, third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, talks about Jesus' Galilean ministry, that he's under such immense pressure from the increasing large crowds. And you get that picture when he's surrounded by the demon-oppressed, he's surrounded by the Pharisees, surrounded by the ill following over him, that he's like to be crushed. That's what it says, literally, that he could be crushed. And that's when... Obviously, Jesus, it tells us, it wasn't just the boat, 
that he went out and spent the whole night in prayer. He really did feel the pressure. It tells us in verse 13, he went up to a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came. And Luke's parallel account says he spent the whole night in prayer, Luke 6.12. You ever attempted to spend a whole night in prayer? Ever done that? Most of us have. I I can remember doing it uh, when I was uh, uh, a young teen with two or three of my buddies. We got a map of the world, and we mapped out where all the missionaries were, and we began to pray. Well, somewhere in the middle of the night, I became comatose, and, uh, and then I woke up and started to pray, and then I heard the snoring of another guy. I mean, to stay up all night in prayer, I mean, that is quite a thing to do. But weary Jesus, pummeled by ministry, liked to be crushed by the crowd, so pressured, really did out of the stars in full consciousness, passionate engagement with God the Father. Why? Because he couldn't carry on his earthly ministry apart from dependent prayer. He was a man, the incarnate Son of God. He couldn't do it. So there on the mountain, he exposed his soul to the sunlight of the Father's presence, and therefore he received strength to do his will, this exposure and exchange. And so I want to say to all of us followers of Christ, the offertory force of this from the greater to the lesser is cosmic. If such prayer was necessary for the eternal Son of God to carry out his mission, how much more necessary is it as adopted sons and daughters? Pressured servants that we are, jostled not only by the regular demands of love, but by needy souls, the ill, even demonized culture, pressured, this is what we need the most. And I will say there can be no success apart from dependent prayer. You disagree? You can have everybody saying you're wonderful, but I'm talking about before God. No success apart from dependent prayer. Success is prayer. Changing gears again. The logic of Scripture is unavoidable. God calls His people to be holy, which in the context of Leviticus means sexual holiness. No unholy life can be considered a success. And so you have the tragic irony. There are untold numbers of successful pastors and Christian workers who are, in fact, abysmal failures. During my long tenure, I have seen it all. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend 15 minutes on this. But I remember years ago, a contemporary of mine, a highly esteemed pastor, was found to be carrying on affairs. And my wife, we we were in England, and I was studying, and she found out about it. You know what? My dear wife cried for two days. 
And then you know what she said to me? Kind of thumped me on the chest, and she said, you better be pure. You better be faithful. Well, I was, and I am, and I always have been. But I can tell you what, I cannot be shocked. I've lived too long. I've heard too much stuff. I cannot be shocked by what happens in the clergy. I can't even speak in a mixed crowd of the stuff I've had to deal with, with clergy. For those of us who desire to serve God successfully, there's no question that sexual purity is essential. And that is a ball that I've kicked down the field a hundred times with David and Samson. Sufficient to say with Bonhoeffer, when lust takes control, at that moment God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. Because lust Glazed eyes become blind to God. And let me just quote John MacArthur. When a man falls into sexual sin, he doesn't fall very far because that's where he's been in the chambers of his soul. Samson's experience becomes an epitaph a graveyard. He did not know that the Spirit had departed from him. So, no bromides here. Holiness is easy, but the fact that God demands it means that he upholds and blesses those who seek it. There can be no success apart from holiness. You beginning to see how this is all stacking up? Now, attitude is huge in the Christian ministry. And there are two attitudes that particularly characterize ministerial failure. That is negativism and then jealousy. Attitudes that we have to avoid like the plague. And for me, an honest look at my ministerial attitudes was crucial in discerning whether my, I was moving towards success or not. Uh, the Apostle Paul set the standard. I love this. If there ever was a type A ministry, a type A person, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, this guy was wound tight. And, and he could be tough. You remember when he was abandoned by uh, 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 Titus, uh, um, Timothy, um, in um, Pamphylia. You remember, he basically wrote him off. I mean, there was reproachment that took place, but he was a type A personality. He was brave. He was passionate. He was a missionary general of the early church. He took beating after beating. He was wound tight. But in Philippi, he's tossed in jail. Philippians 1, the enemies of the, uh, his enemies are out preaching the gospel, hoping to cause him pain. I mean, this unbelievable cussedness of his enemies. Awful. And his response, Philippians 1.18, only then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. 
Because you see, attitude is more important than circumstances. It's more important than the past. It's more important than money. It's more important than successes, than failures, than our gifts, than others' opinions, the so-called facts. And we all have choices every day regarding our attitude toward life. I wrote this under the Philippians passage. Two men looked through the bars. One saw the mud, the other the stars. Paul saw the stars. God bless him. Completely free of jealousy and envy. Like John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. What a way to go. Perpetually seeing the stars, even through the bars. Trusting God to work his will. Encouraging the saints to do the work of the ministry. Rejoicing in salvation. That is success. And I want to say, it's been 37 years since my wife played Russian roulette with her King James Version. And God so wonderfully met her with those astonishing providences. And we covenanted to search the scriptures to find out what God had to say. And that began our liberation from the success syndrome. And here it is. The enduring benefit of our search was that it delivered our ministry from the quantifiers. And I would say the denominational quantifiers, the numbers people who place a number on everything, and the managerial professionals of the church growth movement. Here's the deal. Faithfulness to God's Word and serving with a foot-washing heart and loving God with all your heart and soul and believing in the God who is and praying with the passion and dependence of Christ and living a holy life in a pornographic world and doing ministry with an attitude that sees the stars through the bars and rejoices in the elevation of others, these seven qualities, faithfulness, serving, loving, believing, prayer, holiness, all define quantification. You can't put a number on it, can you? Later, when I went to college church, without doing anything differently, the church began to grow. My wife and I were not seduced. My wife Barbara says it meant less than people might think. And pastors and preachers and elders and congregants, whether you are on the upside of the numbers or downside of the numbers, the Bible must define your success. Not the quantifiers. In fact, I would say those that are on the upside of the numbers need the definition more than are on the downside of the numbers. Now, understand... I'm not talking about a, an above-it-all Buddhist detachment, you know. Uh, I always check the attendance and giving. Uh, people and finance are important when I came in the office, but the report did not deter me from the biblical principle. That was a great thing about learning that now 40 years ago. I haven't been seduced by those things. I'm not impressed by those things. The other enduring benefit was writing our book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. I never planned to write it. 
Let me tell you how it happened. I'd worked through the first three principles. Success is faithfulness. Success is loving God. Success is a servant's heart. And the seminary that I graduated from, Talbot Seminary, uh, decided they would hold a retreat, and they asked two people to come and speak. They asked John MacArthur to come and speak, who his church was just going off the charts, and they asked me to come, whose church was not going off the charts. And so MacArthur came and spoke, and he very humbly said, I I can't credit anything other than preaching the Word. God has done it. I'm sure you've heard him say that kind of thing. I mean, no, I I can't. I don't have any formulas. just God just did it. And then I gave the first three principles. Success is faithfulness and explained it. Success is loving God with all your heart. Success is a foot-washing heart. And we had like a revival that weekend at our retreat. Uh, People weeping, praying, asking uh, for God to restore them. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And uh, we got done with that, put it away. About a year later, I got called to college church. I put it on the shelf, never did anything with it. And uh, about three years into ministry, I was preaching on a Sunday night. And I said, Barbara, I can't get a sermon ready for Sunday night. Will you share with me what we learned about the liberating ministry, what we did, and she said no. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I was my hangdog best. There's no way I'm going to make it if you won't do it. And so uh, we, we announced that we were going to talk about what the Bible had to see as success. And our church was packed out on Sunday night. And uh, I got done preaching, and it was about 20 people lined up to talk. They all wanted to talk about this. It really rang a bell. And at the end of it was an editor from Tyndale House Publishers. I'd never written a book before. And he grabbed me by the arm and he said, this has got to be a book. Don't sign a contract with anybody else. And my wife said, a book? We told you everything we know in 45 minutes. <laughs> and uh, he had to sign the, sign the contract. And we had a small family we immediately spent the money. And so I had to write the book. So that's, that's how it came about. <laughs> It's because God wanted it to happen. And you know, I, I've, I've, this one's godly man sold half a million. I mean, uh, it's, it's out there. But if, if, if the Lord said, you have to take everything out of print but this one book, this is the book I'd leave in print. It's been so helpful to God's servants. And uh, so I want to leave it with you. And I just want to say this in closing. Is it relevant today? And I believe it's very relevant because here's why. Now listen, you may not understand this, but I see it when I get out there. The old managerial professional model was simply out there for all to see. Not very subtle, straight from the anthropologists and IBM. I mean, the old church growth principles. The new siren song is much more subtle because it posits ministerial success on, as John Piper observes, on one of, listen to this, ambience and tone and idiom and timing and banter. It is more intuitive and less taught, more style 
and less technique, more feel and less force, and more seductive. So I want to say that there are, there's a whole generation out there who imagine that hip, ecclesiastical cool is the key to success, and that if you can mix the right cultural cocktail, say of Bonhoeffer, Bono, Mother Teresa, and bits of the Bible, and mix it in a techno cup with a smoke machine, the Holy Spirit's going to use it. That has nothing to do with the supernatural. Success in the Bible is wholly supernatural. Again, imagine what would happen if the ministers of the gospel excelled in the supernatural elements and were faithful, living in profound obedience to God's word and working hard and long at their task, serving with a foot-washing heart, loving God with all the heart, soul, and might, believing in the God who is, praying with the dependence and passion of Christ, living pure, holy lives in a sensual world, manifesting positive, elevating attitude in the midst of ministry, seeing the stars through the bars. Think what would happen. If I was to rewrite the book again, I would add another chapter, which is Success is Weakness. And I'm going to give you the full exposition of that tomorrow morning. Success is supernatural. Success is weakness. So I hope you'll take this with you tonight, think about it, and come prepared for an exposition out of uh, 2 Corinthians tomorrow morning.